our, our family didn't have family vacations. We didn't go to the beach in the summertime. You know, we, we, we wrestled. You know, I don't think I did anything that no one can do or else I wouldn't have done it. It's almost like I was more excited for him to win than, 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 I, than I cared about me winning. You know, that was when I really, truly understood that you can't get on that podium without being a well-rounded wrestler. There's no reason to sleep in. You know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I think sleeping in is a little bit of being lazy. Wrestling is just like one big puzzle. There's like a counterattack to every attack that the opponent has, and it's just fun trying to, like, figure everything out. No, I think you had some uh, pretty good questions, pretty in-depth. Only fault was that I thought I could pin everybody, you know. So going into the semifinals, I didn't really have a game plan. I was like super, super, super intense. All I cared about was wrestling. You know, that's what I love to do. I want to stand. Out. I want to. I want to get in your face. I want to beat you up. For 17 years, it was like it was what I was training for, you know. And this is potentially my last tournament. It's like this is it. It's like eight mile. Like you only get one shot. I felt like he took what was mine, you know, and um, I was trying to take what was his, so just kind of how things go. Welcome to episode 40 of the Sudden History Wrestling Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Earl Smith. If you'd like to leave show feedback, you can always find me on Twitter at EarlD1CW or for the show at Sudden History. Or if you're old school, you can email me, Earl at D1CollegeWrestling.net. Like the last show, I think you'll probably have some opinions on this one. So don't hesitate to hit me up on one of those places to give your opinions. Just so you know, you're listening to a historic episode of Sudden History. This will be the first episode taped from my new podcast studio, a.k.a. a room that we recently reshuffled in my basement. Hopefully it sounds okay as I've tried a couple different areas of the house before. The last time we met on Sudden History, it was the What If episode. It was a topic I thought was appropriate for the collegiate off-season, and this show is also good for a summertime discussion. It's actually a rebirth of one of my favorite features from the D1CW website, the Coaches Poll. So whenever I think of topics to discuss, angles to try and cover when it comes to the sport of wrestling, I like to look at what journalists of other more mainstream sports have covered. Uh, Just in the last couple weeks while I was doing research and uh, gathering information for this show, I noticed that ESPN had its best tools feature for baseball where each day for a week Keith Law puts out a list of the best particular traits for MLB players as voted on by his scouting contacts. So for instance, there's a category of best power, best speed, best curveball, and so forth. For me, I'm almost as much of a baseball geek as I am wrestling geek, so I eat this stuff up. It's always intrigued me and entertained me to go through and read the lists and articles like these. So now, bringing it back around to wrestling, I think it was in the summer of 2009 or so, I decided to start my own similar type poll with uh, active D1 coaches. For me, it's one thing for us fans to throw around some of these topics, but when you get the opinions of some of the greatest minds and the guys you actually work with, around, against these wrestlers, 
I feel like it carries much more weight. It's not to say that some of us non-coaches can't answer these questions and don't do it correctly. It's just I really value the opinions of the coaches themselves. Initially, I wanted to make this an annual feature. And so after seeing the results from the second year I conducted the poll, they were very similar to the first. So I decided to do it every other year, and I had a lot of fun with it. I never really know if readers enjoyed it as much as I did, but... Oh well, so is life. So here's a little behind the scenes inside information on how the whole coaches poll works. So basically I send a questionnaire to about every coach in the country. Head coaches, assistant coaches, volunteer assistants, associate head coaches, whatever titles you can think of, I hit them all. There have been a few guys over the years that have responded to me and said, Earl, I really don't even think of these types of things. So I've remembered getting those type of responses over the years, and I didn't send out the emails to those guys, but pretty much everyone else in the country has had an opportunity to participate in the coaches' bowl. Um, this year it was a pretty respectable response from the coaches. Um, each conference had at least three representatives with many of them having much more. Uh, one conference had nine responses. So as always, when I do these types of things, let's get down to the ground rules. I told the coaches that they could vote for as many people as they felt necessary in a particular category. Uh, most cases that was fine. In one particular instance, I gave a coach a hard time because he listed Zane Rutherford and Kyle Snyder on his best pound-for-pound pound wrestler vote. Now, it's one thing if you can't make a decision between two guys over who's the best scrambler or something like that, but best pound-for-pound, pound, I was like, come on, man, that's the one where you actually have to make a decision. Uh, he tried to blame it on his assistants, saying it was a group discussion and they really couldn't come to a consensus, or whatever. Another one was that you could vote for uh, one or more of your own wrestlers if you felt they fit the mold for the particular question. And really, I don't think anybody abused that. There were obviously some coaches that picked their own wrestlers, but they were in categories that fit them, so I didn't see a problem with it. However, when the questions pertain to the coaches, such as best head coach or best assistant, I asked that they not select a guy from their own staff. The way that I saw it, if you're an assistant coach, and chose to work under a particular head coach, you probably have a high level of respect for him. And conversely, if I'm speaking to a head coach and he hired an assistant, he probably thinks very highly of him. Um, with that, I didn't think I could get fair or accurate responses, so I said no inner staff voting. Of course, I said that all of the voting would be confidential, so while I will reveal the results here and maybe throw in some of my own comments and input to the answers, I won't say who voted for who. Uh, finally, I said this is limited to wrestlers who will be active at the D1 level in 2017-2018. Uh, pretty self-explanatory. Um, this list includes guys that we're sure will redshirt too if you felt like they're, they're going to be an answer to one of my questions. They're, they're allowed. Um, this year I also threw in a wrinkle, which I'll discuss on the second part of the show, a couple of open-ended questions about two of our favorite topics. 
but we'll get to that later. Okay, well, let's get the D1CW Sudden History Coaches Poll started. The first honor we will reveal is the one with the most lopsided results, aside from uh, one special one. But that's going to be the toughest on top. About two-thirds of the voters selected Hodge Trophy winner Zane Rutherford as the wrestler who is toughest from the top position. On mainly the strength of his top game, Zane outscored his opponent 72-6 last year at the NCAA Championships. That figure does not include his semifinal pin of Brandon Sorensen either. A distant second behind Zane was Minnesota's NCAA runner-up Ethan Backpack Lezak and then Seth Gross of South Dakota State. Another category that was a runaway was the old Kitchen Sink Award, the best variety of takedowns, the guy that can beat you the most ways on his feet. The winner of this illustrious honor is Penn State National Champion Jason Nolf. Nolf took down almost 50% of the votes in this category. During competition in dual meets in the 2017 season, Jason racked up 79 takedowns. His next closest teammate on a team full of stars was now former teammate Nick Suriano with 52. Nolf's current teammate, Bo Nickel, was second in the voting with about 24% of the vote. Cade Brock was the only other guy who received a significant amount of support. Jason Nolf also has the distinction of being named the best scrambler. In this category, he took down 35% of the votes. I didn't vote myself, but he would have had my vote just on the strength of his ability to funk out of a deep double leg from May Bethea at the Keystone Classic. I still can't get over that one. There are lots of good candidates who received votes in this category. Second at 22% was Dean Heil. Can't argue with that one. And also, in order, how about Mark Hall, Seth Gross, Jaden Ironman, and Bryce Meredith? Notice that about half of those top six scramblers are all 141-pounders. Okay, so I know what you're probably thinking. The whole poll was just vote for your favorite Penn State wrestler from the blue and white message boards. Again, this was the opinions of their peers and competitors, and really, I mean, can you argue with the results so far? And I'm going to move along and bring up a uh, Nittany Lionless category. Um, the next category and its results were actually pretty interesting, and to be honest, I think there may have even been an error in naming the winner. The category itself was Best Double Leg, Unlike past seasons, I don't think there was anyone who stood out head and shoulders above others when evaluating that particular attack. However, the winner with 31% of the votes was Zahid Valencia of Arizona State. Interestingly enough, his brother Anthony Valencia was second with 14%. Now, I know Anthony has been known, he, he's been known for having an incredible double leg, and he's even had success on the international level with it. Zahid, uh, I would say, probably has a more balanced set of attacks. Um, it seems to me, though, he has a double leg in his repertoire. He's had more success with his lower leg attacks. 
know, part of me wonders if some people got confused and voted Zahid instead of Anthony or maybe just put down Valencia. Uh, I'm not sure, but and you know what? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just way off base. Um, after the Valencia brothers, I saw uh, Colin Moore of Ohio State get the most support, and that makes sense. And there's also some for Logan Massa and Miles Martin. Uh, our next category is one of my favorites. It's highly competitive. The winner was not a runaway at all, and frankly, there were arguments to be made for probably about 10 different guys. That distinction goes to the most improved wrestler. When I sent out this poll to coaches, I said they could use their own interpretation of most improved. It could be an improvement from last November to March. It could be an improvement from March 2016 to 2017. Or it could be from the time they entered college uh, until now. And once I reveal the top vote getters, you'll see how there was a varying level of improvement for all of the nominees. The winner with only 22% of the votes was Lehigh's NCAA champion Darian Cruz. Again, he didn't receive a ton of votes because there are a lot, a lot of good cases to be made. Cruz won his first NCAA title after entering the tournament as the four seed. Uh, this was a year after he failed to place, falling in the round of 12 as the seventh seed. In 2014, as a true freshman, Cruz finished seventh while unseeded. I think it's fair to say while Darian was a big-time recruit for Lehigh and had a good track record, heading into the 2016 season with the EIWA title and All-American plaque under his belt, most people outside of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, didn't have him pegged as a NCAA title favorite. Nipping on his heels, tied for second place with 16% of the votes were Penn State's NCAA champion Vincenzo Joseph and South Dakota State's Seth Gross. Joseph's funny to me because I had him as the number five overall recruit in the class of 2015 recruiting rankings for D1CW and guys with those type of credentials generally don't surprise people by winning or competing for NCAA titles as redshirt freshmen. I think with Penn State's true freshmen, Suriano and Mark Hall in the lineup, Joseph kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people. Gross went from the round of 12 as a freshman to the NCAA finals as a sophomore and did so at a very experienced senior heavy 133-pound weight class. Others who received a push were NCA runner-up Joey Lavalle, Duke's Jacob Casper, who posted a losing record as a true freshman, then three years and two weight classes later, he was in the NCA semifinals. Bryce Meredith, Paul Fox of Stanford, and Drew Foster of Northern Iowa were also among the top vote-getters. Foster will forever be known to me as the guy who wore the Jeff Gordon NASCAR shirt while he was warming up for the NCAA quarters. So we go from category with a ton of good candidates to one with a very narrow group of guys mentioned. Again, once I name the category, it shouldn't be that surprising, and that is best incoming freshman. And it really came down to two guys, neither of which will be very shocking. The winner was Oklahoma State's Dayton Fix. He actually took home more than 60% of the votes. Iowa's Spencer Lee had about 
I think a year ago those percentages probably would have been flipped favoring Lee. And personally, I agree with our coaches' assessments, or at least the ones who picked fix. I have some concerns about Lee's injury track record the past two seasons, and that's all of which before he ever set foot in the brutal Iowa Hawkeye wrestling room. It should be noted there were a couple of votes for Cornell's Yanni Dehaka-Mahalas. Um, he can't be overlooked and is probably the only sure starter out of those three next year. If you were to tell me five years from now that he had the best career out of the three, I wouldn't be entirely shocked. Let's move on and get one of the big ones out of the way, best head coach. Winning by a pretty significant margin of 18 percentage points is six-time NCAA champion head coach Cale Sanderson of Penn State. He certainly has the respect of his peers, even if there are some pockets of fans who like to spout off the he-can-only-recruit nonsense. Even if there were some truth to that, and I don't think there is, how important is recruiting to coaching? Would you say it's a third of the job? Maybe more, maybe less, but if he's incredible at one-third of his job and saying nothing else about him at all, that would be pretty important and significant. Anyways, Kale's team in 2016-17 fell to Ohio State at the Big Tens, then rebounded to win Nationals by 36.5 points, crowned five NCAA champions, all who returned this year, and did so with an injured 125-pounder that was seeded third. The runner-up in this best head coach category was in second place by a pretty decisive margin over his competition, getting 22% of the votes, and that's Missouri's Brian Smith. Smith was never a D1 All-American as a competitor, so it's kind of the opposite of Kale, the most decorated college wrestler in history. His Tigers have finished in the top six in each of the last three NCAA championships, and he's totally transformed the Missouri program since taking over in 1998. Edinburgh's Tim Flynn and Ohio State's Tom Ryan tied for third, followed by a group that includes Chris Bono, John Smith, and Pat Papalizio. Another category that was dominated by Penn State was Best Pinner. Hodge Trophy winner Zane Rutherford edged teammate Bo Nickel for first place, getting 46% of the vote to Nickel's 35%. It's fitting that these two ended up so close because they both finished the 2017 season with 17 falls tying for the team lead. After three seasons competing for the Nittany Lions, Zane has racked up 36 pins, which ranks him fifth on the all-time list for Penn State. David Taylor and Josh Moore are tied for first place with 53, so another 17 like in his junior season, he would tie the team record. Teammate Bo Nickel now has 25 pins over his first two years in Happy Valley. If he were to equal or exceed those 17 pins in each of his next two seasons, he would become Penn State's new pin king by a healthy margin. Now we're going back to coaching with the best assistant coach category. In past coaches' polls, this has always been one of the most competitive categories with a whole wide range of quality assistants receiving votes. This year was no different. Ultimately, the winner was Penn State's Casey Cunningham. Cunningham has a title of head assistant coach for the defending NCAA champs. Whenever there's a head coaching vacancy, his name is always on the short list 
of dream candidates or fans of those teams. It remains to be seen if he's actually interested in leaving the great situation that he's helped to create in State College. The Nittany Lions with Cunningham and Kale Sanderson overseeing the upper weights have produced seven NCAA champions at 165 pounds or higher since taking over in 2011. Those seven wrestlers have combined to win 11 titles. The runner-up for best assistant coach is actually no longer an assistant coach, and that is Frank Beasley. I was glad to see he got the credit he deserved from his peers, finishing ahead of uh, such big names as Cody Sanderson, Damian Hahn, and Brian Snyder. About two weeks ago now, it was announced that Beasley will be the new head coach at George Mason. Frank was previously at NC State and helped sign the top recruiting class in the country in 2016 and was part of a coaching staff that's helped elevate the Wolfpack team to become a mainstay in the rankings and a budding power. As we wind down the poll, we'll make our way to the category of most difficult to take down. This was right along my line of thinking with the winner being Dean Heil of Oklahoma State. He was the runner-up in the best scrambler category, and that scrambling ability was a huge reason why he's nearly impossible to take down. I actually reached out to Dean to see if he knew off the top of his head how many times he was taken down last year. Um, he said he'd have to think about it. I figured it could only be a couple times, but um, maybe I was wrong. Heil ended up receiving about a third of the votes from our coaches. The runner-up was not necessarily the guy who would come to mind for me first, but it sort of makes sense, and that's Kyle Snyder. I guess he's pretty hard to take down if he's constantly taking you down or you're constantly in fear of him taking you down. Snyder received 19% of the votes, while Zane Rutherford was in third place with 11%. The next one is a category I tried out for the first time this year. As the D1CW Sudden History Coaches Poll has progressed over the years, some of the categories have been added while others were omitted. This new addition is Best Future Head Coach. Sounds like Best Assistant Coach, all right? Not quite. The caveat is I did not limit the category to assistant coaches. I wanted it to include current collegiate wrestlers, current international wrestlers, whoever. I actually received one vote for Eric Guerrero, who is currently not officially a college coach. So it was a very wide open group of individuals to choose from. The inaugural winner was three-time world and Olympic champion and counting, Kyle Snyder. Whenever his competitive career ends, who wouldn't want to wrestle for Kyle? His outlook on the sport and competition are refreshing and, in my opinion, leads, lends itself well to coaching. Uh, his credentials aren't bad either. Uh, being a very competitive voting category, Snyder won while receiving 18% of the votes. The next two leading vote-getters were also mentioned in the Best Assistant Coach category, Casey Cunningham and Damian Hahn. After those two was Donnie Pritzloff, a guy always mentioned for D1 openings. He was tied with Frank Beasley, whom the future is now as far as being a head coach goes, 
and also Chris Perry. I thought that one was kind of interesting. He certainly has the bloodlines. And before we get to the big one, we'll talk about a category. I really had no idea how it would play out, and that is most athletic. I think in past years, there have been a few guys that stood head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, I didn't necessarily think that was the case this year, but the result was that Illinois' two-time NCAA champion, Isaiah Martinez, won the voting with just under 33% of the votes. I happened to rewatch the flow documentary to Helen back about IMR last week. And a lot of the commentary from Mark Perry can be used to demonstrate his athleticism. I won't bore you regurgitating it all, but it's uh, a very apt description for someone who's voted most athletic. The runner up with 24% of the votes was freshman national champion, Mark Hall, his fellow national champion, Darian Cruz rounded up the top three finishing with 11% of the votes. So for the big one, best pound-for-pound pound wrestler, the hands-down winner with 75% of the votes was Captain America himself, Kyle Snyder. I've run out of all the stats and stuff, so I'll just say, yeah, that makes sense. That's the correct call. Zane Rutherford, the Hodge Trophy winner, finished second. It'll be interesting to see if the Hodge Trophy voting goes the same way this year as it's expected that Snyder will have another abbreviated college season while he competes overseas. It also should be noted there was one vote for someone other than Snyder and Rutherford, and that was Imar. I was a bit surprised on that front, and it did not come from a member of the Illini coaching staff. So that concludes the coaches poll portion of the show. If you'd like to see some of the numbers that I've been quoting for the poll results, I've posted them on the D1CW website. If you don't know it, shame on you. It's www.d1collegewrestling.net. I've put a link to the results on the homepage. For anyone that's a fan of the website, I expect to see more original content on the site. Uh, last year was kind of a terrible year for me with the website, but we won't get into that now. As I alluded to earlier, I did throw out two questions about some of our favorite topics to discuss on the message boards, hoping the coaches would provide their input. The first question was, what is your ideal national duels solution, if any, now, over the past few years, the National Duels has had a couple different facelifts, reinventions, formats. Um, what most of us are most familiar with and maybe most fond of were the 16-team tournament-style format that featured D1 teams competing next to teams from other divisions all under the roof of the UNI Dome in early January. This went up through the 2011 season. The next season, 24 teams competed in four 16 regionals with the four winners moving along to wrestle at one of the winning schools, which turned out to be Stillwater, Oklahoma. The first portion with 24 teams was held on the weekend of February 12th, and the final four was held the next weekend. In 2013, four teams automatically made it to the National Duel Finals, while four teams had to emerge from a three-team region, 
The first regional weekend was February 17th, while the finals were the week of February 22nd and 23rd. In 2014, they moved, they went back to the tournament format with 14 teams, and this occurred over a Sunday and Monday in mid-February on the campus of Ohio State. In 2015, there were eight prearranged regional dual meets where two teams met, and then the winners moved along to Iowa City in mid-February. Over the past two years, the National Duels Bolt Series took place where the top Big Ten school was supposed to meet the top non-Big Ten school, and then the second Big Ten school was supposed to meet the second-ranked non-Big Ten school, and so on and so forth, provided they hadn't met already. In 2016, the Big Ten schools hosted, while in 2017, the non-Big Ten schools hosted. This, of course, had problems when certain schools refused to wrestle other schools. Um, we did get the term oranges. Um, so this upcoming season, there are no national duels planned at the D1 level. So now on to the coaches' suggestions. I'm going to throw out a bunch of them and then throw in some of my comments um, a couple of them are similar, so I won't read every single suggestion that I received. The first is conference dual tournament at the beginning of the season where each conference hand selects their best team to compete against the other conferences can be ran alongside the NWCA All-Star Classic. Okay, well... We'll start with the timing. I like the idea of holding an event in conjunction with the All-Star Classic. Uh, many of the coaches are not having, they're not fans of having multiple tough duels late in February. As far as the conference hand selecting the best team to compete, I think we may have problems with that. Uh, who's doing the selecting? Uh, I can just see Tom Brand saying, yeah, we're having a down year. Kale, you guys go ahead. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Tom Ryan would concede anything to anyone this year. Um, so, another suggestion. Two NCAA titles, individual and dual, 16-team bracket, unchanged individual tournament. We're not getting much detail, but ultimately I think that's going to be most people's goal. Moving along to another one, 16 teams, top four from the Big Ten, top three from the Big 12, top three from the EIWA, top two from the ACC, and the top team from the MAC, Pac-12, EWL, SOCON. First day, four groups of four, round robin, each team gets three duels. Second day, four-team bracket, national semis, final, and third place. I like this. Um, if it's done at the right time of year, it could be very interesting. As I mentioned earlier, I don't foresee coaches wanting to have, you know, a possibility of five tough duels over two days in late February if they can avoid it. Uh, another one we have here, mandatory for top 16 teams no matter what. Semis and finals televised on ESPN in an arena that can hold 10,000 on the East Coast. Sorry, Midwest fans, 80% of D1 schools are on the East Coast. Separate conference teams from each other. If Clemson wants to bring back wrestling, do it there. 
give fans a sunny location, do it over Christmas break, challenge the norm of not going to the Midlands and scuffle, don't hide behind a lack of funding, build it into your budget. So, I will say this came from an East Coast coach, if you couldn't guess. Um, I'd love it for it to be mandatory that the top 16 teams are present. That would present some crazy team matchups. I know from years of doing rankings, after you get to a certain point team-wise, it can get pretty difficult. A lot of those teams from 15 to 25 can be pretty interchangeable. I certainly think we should be on ESPN considering some of the program programming that they have on there now. However, I feel like uh, wrestling has wanted to get on TV so badly in past years. We've settled for crappy time slots, tape delayed on networks that I didn't even realize that we had. Sunny location over the Christmas break. Sounds like someone likes the idea of the South Beach duels. Okay, another one here. I like the old national duels. Bring all the divisions together. It was well attended and a fun event for the fans. Really, I agree on all points. Um, you know, I, logistically, I remember John Smith, among others, who didn't like coming to Iowa for the duels every year. Uh, moving along to another one. I like the idea of a point system from your result at the national duels carried over into the individual NCAA tournament to truly crown the best dual and tournament team. Wasn't happy with the point totals that were presented, thought they should be lower, but liked the concept because the best teams would have to go to the national dual championship. So I'm kind of coming around on this idea. Originally, a few years ago, when this idea was floated out there, I hated it. At the end of the day, I don't think it would change team races too much. Uh, maybe every few years there'd be an exception, and it would probably decrease the chances of Edinburgh getting a trophy like they did in 2015, or American or Arizona State finishing in the top 10 despite a sub-500 dual record. Um, here's, here's another one. Give it to the NCA, let them run it. Short and sweet. Um, However, the uh, concept of not having it run by the NWCA is interesting. Um, if the NCA ran it, uh, it would take away power from prominent coaches who wish to avoid the event or manipulate it, as has happened recently. So that's, that's interesting to me. Back to late January, one site, top 16 teams. Uh, here's someone who agrees to my earlier statements it shouldn't be in mid to late February. Also, keep it to one weekend. All right, here's another one. A dual-style tournament with the top four teams mid-season. National duels at the end of the year will never work because it's always been less important than having an individual national tournament. Coaches want their athletes to be healthy and fresh. Having two to three grueling matches right before the conference tournament isn't great for peaking and creates high risk for injuries. Example, Suriano, comma, Nick. Okay, um, another more detailed explanation for not having it in February. Personally, I'd like to see more than four teams participate, but if you always had the top four teams involved, I'd enjoy it. 
Okay, another one. I think all schools should be involved. Some sort of regional format. Four to six regions. Champions go the next weekend to determine the champ. The rest can go to another regional to get more matches. Uh, I think we've kind of been down this road before. Uh, granted, the regional formats used in previous years didn't include all the teams, uh, but the format has been tried. And I'm not a fan of having it carry over to multiple weekends, but who knows. Okay, here's one. Two seasons, one semester. Dual season to start, followed with dual championship, then tournament season with individual championships. Um, it may be a different argument, but I definitely think we need to have wrestling be a one-semester sport. Uh, I've actually liked the idea of two distinct seasons for a while. My idea has always been the tournament season to start, followed by a dual season. Um, it's kind of the opposite from what we do now, but my reasoning is you could promote some of the success stories, the Cinderella stories that you have on your own campus. In 2015, when David Terrell of America became the darling of the NCAA tournament, it would be great to be able to promote dual meets around your campus using him. Unfortunately, in that instance, he was a senior and the tournament was his last event. Also, I think it's important to get some sort of a regular dual schedule for the fans. You know, some teams may have one home meet in November, two more in December, then another one uh, mid to late January. You know, keep the interest of your casual fans and students. Okay, here's another one. Best team from each conference goes to national duels. Uh, another one where I initially agree with the concept, however, if we're using the idea this season, it wouldn't be quite the event it could be with, say, Penn State in and Ohio State, Michigan, Iowa all sitting out. Uh, here's another one. Make national duels after NCAA championships each of the two following weekends in a single elimination format. 16-team bracket with every conference champion plus wild cards with criteria established to determine the wild cards. The weekend after NCAs, four locations, four teams each. That determines top four teams nationally. Then the following weekend, you have the semifinals and finals of national duels at a predetermined location. So I like the idea of having it after NCAs. You would have some attrition from the tournament, however. Uh, I like 16 teams with each conference represented. Criteria in international styles is bad. Here, it would be needed. Um, I'm still not a fan of dragging it out multiple weeks, but overall, I think it's a good idea. Okay, here's another one. 16-team event, including each conference champion wild cards. Eight regional sites where the top-ranked team hosts. Final eight teams meet at a designated site to determine the top four places. Okay, so if you keep mentioning multiple weeks, maybe I'm the one that's in the wrong. Uh, another one. All 77 teams enter eight regional tournaments. Week one, regionals, Saturday, rounds of 77 and 64. Sunday, rounds of 32 and 16. Week two is the finals. Saturday, rounds of 8 and 4. Sunday, final NCAA championship. 
and stopped giving away the team title at the individual NCAA championships. <laughs> Multiple weeks again. Uh, I do like all 77 teams being involved. Um, I mentioned, the, I think if you can give the national championship to a dual, the dual champion, you know, most of the time it's going to be the same team. Uh, every few years you may have something different. All right, here is one more. Have two weeks after NCAA championships so lineups can be adjusted to the best team rather than individuals, conference champs, and wild cards for a 16-team tournament. Another vote for after the NCAA tournament. Uh, this one is two weeks afterwards. Interesting to mention doing the best thing for the team. In this scenario, uh, would you see guys move around weight classes? I didn't necessarily think of that initially, but it could be a cool wrinkle. Uh, another one here, dual season from August to September, culminating in a 2014 double elimination, three-day championship to eighth place, then individual tournament October, NCAA individual tournament first week of December. One semester sport, better for student athlete welfare, and allows our athletes to have December through January to recuperate their bodies, refocus their mindset, and have a fuller international season in the spring and summer. Wow. Three-day 2014 double elimination tournament to eighth place. Not playing around, are we? From a fan standpoint, I love it. As I said before, I like the one semester idea. And I like the idea of a recuperation time for the international season. I don't know, however, about having so much overlap with the college football season. You know, not sure television networks are going to want to bump college football for wrestling, sadly, um, if TV was the goal. Um, so that's basically it for the national duels responses. Again, there were more that I received, but they may have... Uh, closely resembled other responses. So the second question that I asked our coaches was, if you could make one rule change to make college wrestling better, what would it be? An overwhelming support for the push-out rule to be incorporated was the number one answer. I'm not going to read each response that involved that rule, just take my word for it. So, on to some of the other suggestions. All tournaments must have a host hotel where all weigh-ins are held. All tournaments must require a credentialed floor access. The implementation of both of these rules will help with the poor public image of our tournaments not being an event, with the exception of the NCAA championships. Okay, those are a few ideas I hadn't necessarily thought of before. However, not bad. And I'm in favor of anything that's going to make our sport look big league. Our next suggestion, that all refs hold all coaches accountable when they break the rules. This one I actually had to follow up on because I wanted to make sure exactly what the coach was referring to. And this particular coach is uh, tired of getting yelled at for having one toe out of the coaching area at tournaments while other big name coaches run all over the mats and the refs tend to turn a blind eye. I mean, you know, I see it happening all the time. Um, I didn't necessarily think it was something that needed the immediate attention, but I understand. 
Next suggestion, exposure rules like freestyle. Needless to say, the coach who suggested this was a very successful freestyler. Um, I kind of like having a distinction between folk and free. If we're going to do that, then let's just go all the way and wrestle freestyle. And, you know, maybe that's what his point was anyways. Another suggestion, make college wrestling freestyle like the rest of the darn planet. If we want to win at the highest level, let's do what everyone else is doing and not hinder our athletes' chances. Okay, so this guy isn't beating around the bush. Next suggestion, let's not make any rule changes for three years so we can build a fan base outside of wrestling that can follow the rules. So there were actually a lot of coaches that uh, you know said some form of this answer. Um, they're sick and tired of the rules getting changed every year. Uh, for some reason, I wasn't expecting that answer, but it does make a whole lot of sense. Another suggestion, more stalling calls on top. Emphasize trying to score from top. I generally agree with this. Um, I get scared, though, how it could be applied or misapplied. Next suggestion, night before weigh-ins for tournaments, we get there so early to check weight, cut the last pound, and sit around for a couple hours until we weigh in, then another two hours before we compete. Night before weigh-ins gets everyone a team meal, good night's sleep to prepare for competition and wrestle at their best. We have already certified, so we can't go lower in the weight class, and this would only be for tournaments. Um... I like the sentiments behind this. I'm not sure if you can do it just for tournaments and not duels. Sudden victory overtime is another suggestion. Um, I probably should have followed up on this one for more detail. Um, I remember a few years ago at Flows, who's number one, Nick Suriano and Dayton Fix wrestled in that 35-minute sudden victory match. As amazing as that was, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it'd probably screw up the flow of a tournament if you had a couple of those matches. The pure fan in me loves it, though. Um, another one would be no headgear or ankle bands. That is where we get made fun of with mainstream movies and TV shows. What about Blue and Old School? You're my boy, Blue! Valid point, though. Stalling is called if no one scores in the first period. Someone gets a warning, the ref will determine this. While the whole ref will determine this is always scary to me, I do agree with this one. Uh, there are very few matches that I've watched where you have a three-minute scoreless first period and no one is stalling. I know it's happened. I know we've had a couple of these matches where... You know, there's great scrambles and great defense and reshots and defense and stalemates and scrambles. But uh, more often than not, uh, you don't get that in someone stalling. Um, another suggestion is no more singlets. Um, I hope the coach is referring to using compression gear and not ancient Greek style. Um, if it is the compression gear or something similar, I'm all for it. You can add singlets into the earlier coach's comments about things that always get made fun of in mainstream TV or movies. Uh, another one is play music during matches. That's someone after my own heart. I know I would get into that as a spectator. Um, another one, 
allow biting. Uh, that one was actually that someone did say that they followed it by a just kidding. Um, I would say that would probably lead to more offense. So, um, you know, if you're on bottom and the top guy bites you, you're probably going to find a way to get out. You might throw an elbow and get DQ'd or something like that, but uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Here's another one. Mimic freestyle after 20 seconds on the mat. Back to neutral if no back points. Once again, I'm not opposed to going strictly freestyle, but let's go all the way, not half. Another suggestion, make takedowns worth three points. Um, I, I like this. I love rewarding aggressiveness from neutral uh, more so than the near fall rules that changed a few years ago. And the last one we have is one seven-minute period with push-outs from neutral worth one point. I would also make team OT in duels. Each weight re-wrestle for one minute. All athletes must remain the same. No new athletes added to a roster for overtime. A cumulative scoring for the team to decide the team winner after 10 overtime bouts. Fall forfeit injury default is an automatic team win. Wow. <laughs> One seven minute period's pretty grueling. And then another minute for a team overtime. I don't know. I'm going to have to take some time to digest this one. So, okay, that's it for the D1CW Sudden History Coaches Pool. Um, I'm sure the listeners out there have some opinions on everything I've discussed today. You have a problem with the voting results. You have another suggestion regarding national duels or rule changes. Again, reach out to me on Twitter or by email. I'd love to hear your input. Uh, maybe if there's some good suggestions, I'll bring them up on the next show. And speaking of the next show, I've got a few good ones lined up, so stay tuned. But that's all we've got for this week. So Greg Jones, take us away. How the hell do I get off this stage? <laughs>